Hello, I'm Michael Watson, history publisher at Cambridge University Press, and today I'm talking to Roger Ransom, Emeritus Professor of History and Economics at the University of California, Riverside, about his new book, Gambling on War, Confidence, Fear and the Tragedy of the First World War. Roger, it's clearly a very timely moment to be um, talking about the First World War on the eve of the centenary of the armistice. And um, one thing that you know interested me as a kind of starting point was what drew you to studying the First World War? You know, obviously you, you previously studied the US Civil War. Um, were there kind of clear links between the two? Was that something that, that drew you to, the, to study the First World War? Well, let me begin by simply saying that when I transferred from economics to history in 1984, one of my assignments that uh, evolved was teaching an introduction to the 20th century. And I had, as you say, I had spent a good deal of time studying the American Civil War. And now I discovered that, in a sense, what some historians call the European Civil War was actually something that I could approach in the same sort, in, in the same way, because in a very real sense, the American Civil War had all the characteristics of the Great War in Europe. And in fact, I think that's one reason Americans were so reluctant to enter the war. And teaching the introduction to the 20th century, I became aware of just how big an effect the World War, World War I had. And I recalled a phone call, uh, excuse me, a letter from my daughter over in France on a, a student exchange in the late 1990s. And she sent me a letter in which she said, you know, Dad, the French treat the World War I the way we treat the Civil War. And I came to realize that that was true and in the same way that the Civil War had dominated my economic interpretation of the United States, I now turned my attention to teaching how World War One totally changed my world. Hmm. I mean, it's very, it's very striking um, talking of um, you know things dominating World War One dominating. I mean, World War One has really dominated the sort of publishing output um, of, of many publishers over the last four years, but. Um, it's striking to me as someone who, who does both economic and military history here at the press um, how, how little um, the economic history of the war has been, has been tackled. And um, so, yeah, I think it'd be interesting to, to think about what the kinds of insights that economic history can bring to the war. Well, I think it's, what's interesting is, as you pointed out, economic historians did not like to go and try and explain the Great War. And to some extent, that's true with the American Civil War as well. And they wanted to just, they took it as an event in history. And the reason it's so difficult for economic historians to deal with World War I is that the war changed things so dramatically that there is no way you can easily fit into what you might call an economic model or an economic interpretation of the war that makes any sense. So you simply take it as given and you study the effects. But to this day, the economic historians shy away from trying to explain why the war happened. Uh, it was a deus ex machina, as one economic history uh, writer, uh, Kevin O'Rourke, uh, in, in, in a book that is one of the few times that a, an economic historian with a background in economics 
tried to explain the war, and it gave up. <laughs> and so, and I think that's still true. So, what I'm trying to do, or what I tried to do in the book, is to produce an interpretation of the war that did tackle the explanation problem, uh, in by combining a narrative for history with a background uh, in uh, a field that that they call cleometrics, which is when economic history historians bring their quantitative models to questions in history. And I'm trying to go back and look with a narrative of how things change so quickly that you, you sort of have to shift models as you go or shift explanations as you go through the war. Mm -hmm. So if we um, start then with the war's outbreak, because um, there's quite a split amongst historians in terms of interpretations of the outbreak of the war from um, people talking about how improbable um, the outbreak of the, uh, the outbreak of war was in 1914 and how much stability there was in the international system um, I mean my take from reading your book is you know is rather different the explanations of the war that that have come out all stress the ways in which countries in in the words of Christopher Clark Everybody had a smoking gun and everybody was ready to go to war. And that was the first time in a century. I mean, if you go back through the century before 1914, there are no wars that come close to comparing what the World War I was. And I think what everybody sort of eventually does is to come down and say, well, it was just one of those events where they tipped over a domino and all the other dominoes just fell in a row. But as uh, Richard Overy says very, very, I think convincingly in a, in a, in a book that he's written on the, on the Second World War, the, the point is that these things were not random events, they weren't automatic, they each involved a decision. And the problem is though decisions that were being made were made in a sense in a vacuum. No one really knew what a total war would produce. And they were all rather taken back when they discovered what it would be. And, and they were totally unprepared for that. So you have the irony of people who were con absolutely convinced and confident that they, they should do this, i.e. enter the war. And we, we can get back to that in detail if we like. But the thing I like to start out stressing is they all thought they were making perfectly reasonable decisions based on what their experience, you know, we all draw on. But for 100 years, there hadn't been anything to explain that. And so they did what they always did. They, they went ahead and declared war. And there was no declaration of war, single declaration of war, that, can, that, that explains, quote, the start of the war. Everybody started a bunch of what's, what they thought would be littler wars, that grew into the huge, in a very short period of time, the huge war that had emerged by the end of 1914. I think when they all had run out of ammunition because they weren't prepared to fight a long war at this at this level, mm -hmm. and to this to this day, the, the number of casualties suffered in the first six months of the war uh, was the bloodiest period of the entire war. Mm -hmm. I mean, something that's very interesting about that is that really that question of, yes, why, why did you get to that point? Um, and there's no pause. Well, no, why, yes, why did, 
why didn't people stop at that stage once you know the enormity of of the war became clear well that that leads to the second second issue that has always bothered both all all of the social scientists because the obvious answer to that question uh, and it was posed by one of the german generals at the beginning of of uh, 1915 who told the kaiser you re we really should quit now while we're ahead but everybody was afraid of the consequences of losing and not losing the war becomes a dominant theme every year after year after year well it's only a stalemate if we just press here or press there maybe this time it will work but the thing about that is that in 1914 the germans were within gun range of paris and only a concerted effort by the allies to push them back at that point finally ended that particular episode that's the schlieffen plan invasion and so on. in 1918 the german army was almost in the same place four years later the difference is in 1914 the true effect of trying to to wage the war had largely had they had the economic resources the the, the men the guns the butter and so forth and they could continue fighting but the germans in june June of 1918, even though their military success had equaled 1914 with the Ludendorff in, uh, offensives, there was nothing at home. The cupboard was bare. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the phrase I like to use is that they were running on empty. Mm -hmm. And so six months after the Germans were almost back to the Marne, almost back to Paris, they have to throw in the towel because they realize their economy is shot because they... They have all these men scattered all the way into what is today Poland and the Crimea and so forth, but they didn't have the economic resources anymore to keep fighting. And what the what I try and do is to bring in not just the economic side, but also the military history. The military history is one that says in 1918 the Germans still had a chance to win the war. The economic side of it is, but they couldn't hold up what they had finally won, and again they had the retreat, mm -hmm. and of course, and then in the you you get to the final end, final end, which is a total military victory. In a in the context that by that time they're not sure what they were fighting for in the beginning anyway. Mm -hmm. There is a, there is much at a loss to explain the war then as we are today. Mm -hmm. So if we if we step back to 1914 then, so looking at kind of economic resources resource mobilization. So, so how, how did the two sides compare then in, in terms of, um, yeah, the resources they could bring to the battlefield? Well, I think by the, the contemporary right now interpretation tends to be that the Germans should never have started that war because they were going, they weren't going to be defeated militarily, but the British, the French, and eventually the Americans all had resources throughout the world that in terms of economic terms the germans were at a huge disadvantage because while the allies had all the resources of the british empire the french empire and the american empire to back up their fighting the germans didn't have anything and in fact the british blockade effectively cut them off from whatever sources not all but most of the resources the germans could draw on so as early as 1915, 
it was already clear that the Germans, they needed to have a war that would end quickly because the longer the war went on, the more likely it was the Germans or the central powers. They were, go they were, going, to be, they were going to be in the short end of the deal. And Falkenhayn, the German general, he realized that. He stated very clearly in his 1915 memo that we are in trouble because the British have their empire, the French have their empire, and we don't. In a sense, you might say, we are fighting to get that empire, but we don't have it yet. And in, in some ways, perhaps it's a paradox then that the what would draw the Americans into the war was... Um, you know, their, their very attempts to combat that kind of um, resource imbalance through submarine warfare. The, the Americans were just a sum of state on the sidelines. But the, what the submarine warfare did is it, it did make life harder for the British, but it didn't bring the British to their knees as the German admirals had hoped. And it really irritated the Americans who depended, their empire was was, was a rather different sort of empire that de depended on an active free trade. And submarine attacks on, on, on merchant marines and so forth uh, became a real problem for the Americans. And Wilson was able to turn that into a reason for actually entering the war. Presumably with the Americans' entry to war, so it wasn't necessarily an immediate effect, but it must have felt like victory was inevitable. It is amazing how fast the Americans could go from a happy, peaceful people just getting along in their own little game into a war machine. They did it in 1860, and they did it again in 1914. And in between, they had the organization to set up a huge army, even though there was a very small number of men in that. And what both, what all of the people in 1914 were amazed at was the speed with which the Americans were able to put two million men in the field in the space of about 18 months. I mean, you'd had an arms race that dated all the way back to Bismarck in the 1870s that had the Europeans ready for a war. But the Americans just shrugged and said, well, we'll be ready for the war pretty quickly again. And they were. And of course, they had to fight with French planes and British guns and so forth. That side of it took a little longer. But they had the men organized in an action in the space, really, of about eight months. The United States is curiously a country that abhors and doesn't like standing armies. So they have what you might call an unstanding army waiting to be called up. It's called the militia. And even as, early, as late as 1914, the the authority for, for calling up was a state authority, which was seldom used uh, except against the Native Americans. But the organization of generals and so forth was there, and bingo, they they sent two million men to France. Mm -hmm. You talked, and the Germans could see that they had to win a, a quick victory, and you know, close only constant in, in horseshoes. And the problem facing the Germans was they had to actually drive the British back into Britain in the 1918 officials' offensives. And if they didn't do that, they were going to lose. Mm -hmm. You were talking about, um, yeah, so Americans using um, French tanks or British um, British weaponry. What about the kind of sort of technological innovation in the war? You know, was, was it particularly marked that one side was stronger in that um, regard than the other? 
Well, the interesting thing about technology, I mean, there's certain technologies that were adapted very quickly, uh, like the use of, of telegraph and, and messages and information. But there is innovation. It, it doesn't, the problem is it, you can't just sort of on Saturday decide we're going to have tanks and on Sunday send them off to war. Uh, no one at, at the outbreak of the war uh, there have been huge technical advances in firepower and, and artillery and so forth. But they were, all, they were all based on sort of pitched battles and a standing, a, a, a fairly sta static uh, front, so to speak. And the technology evolves slowly, but it doesn't really begin to hit the, the, the field, so to speak, until 1917. And eventually you get planes, airplanes, you get tanks, you get different tactics, but it took that long for them to work, them in, work into the way in which people were fighting. For two and a half years, the war was being fought in all of its phases, not much differently in terms of tactics from the American Civil War. It's just the guns are a little bit, well, quite a, quite a bit better and the casualty rate seems to be higher. But in terms of tactics, there's very little, you can find all the tactics in the First World War in the, in, in the American Civil War. Even the, even the very end, uh, um, the American Northerners uh, came, up, came up with a way uh, and, and, and the will uh, to produce a certain amount of uh, activity and movement. But that takes in 1917, 18, that's when the, when you finally get the Germans taking new tactics, you get flamethrowers, you get tanks and so on. But it took about two years for those to be worked in. Some people say that's very slow in terms of the war, but in, actually it's incredibly fast if you think how long it takes most inventions to really be realized. Mm -hmm. And so 1918 was really this critical moment then when it, when it feels like on the Allied side that you, you began to get, you know, new tactics combined warfare. So was that really the what Allied, took Both sides came up with ways to break the stalemate. Uh, the German way was with reorganizing their infantry, having, a, having groups of, art, having artillery and infantry working in a way that created finally breakthroughs and so forth. The Allied side had more technology involved. What theirs was, was the development of tanks that could bridge the the gaps and, and turning the Western Front finally into a mobile as opposed to a total static war. And the dilemma facing the Germans in 1918, really, because they were understanding that their economy was falling apart and so forth, but they had put together their resources in one last gasp and thrown it at the Allies, and it almost worked. Um, even if it had worked, it's not clear what would have happened but it almost worked. They drove all the way back to where they were in 1914, but then when they finally gave up, the Allies then used their techniques of offensive weapons, and in a massive offensive in the summer of 1918, they basically drove the, Germany's back, drove the Germans back to, to Germany. But all of this is a, a huge amount of change compacted into about one year from basically the middle of 1917 to the fall of 1918. And the Allies were then posed to keep, keep up. And what I, 
were poised to invade Germany, but they didn't. And it, I think what is going to be particularly memorable in 19, you know, today, rather, 2018, 100 years later, we are debating whether or not that was a serious mistake on the part of the Germans, uh, on, excuse me, on the part of the Allies, to accept a rapidly issued ceasefire request because Ludendorff and his friends had finally decided they had to throw, throw in the towel and they wanted to throw in the towel before the Allies could actually exercise their military might to invade Germany. Allied troops never got to Berlin. There's no end to the war the, the way there is 20 years later when you get to the end of World War II. The armistice said that they, 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 they threw the, the Russian Revolution in, into a separate little basket and didn't worry about it. They said that all the land Russia had given up in the treaty with Germany in 1918, treaty was actually 1918. Uh, all of those things were, were, were fine. We would just do it. And then they, the, the four leaders uh, of, the, of the Allies all went home and things just had to work themselves out. But there was no real ability on the part of the Allies or the scheme to, to get things reorganized. I mean, do you think it was it was the perhaps the how important was the Russian Revolution in changing that thinking? Then you know, perhaps coming coming to the end of war and whether to invade Germany. Well, of course, the problem there is that the Germans had basically won the war in the east, had gotten a lot of land and territory from the Russians, and the attitude of the Allies towards Russia once they abandoned the war was to just sort of not think about them. They don't show up at the peace treaty. They, 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 they basically are left with the terms of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which basically settled the boundaries, or settled the issue at least, the boundaries uh, between uh, Germany and Eastern Europe. And the, what you have then is a situation where when the Soviet Union is formed, uh, the Soviets are just off as spectators in the side. And that stays true all the way into the 1930s when, when Stalin sets up the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and you get this triad of the, the, the former allies who won the war, the central powers who lost the war, and the Russians who were off, off uh, on, their, on their now an isolated socialism for one country. And basically... The situation of the of the Russian Revolution is, is an interesting one because it sets up what will be become a pivotal part of the post-war history, which is the Soviet Union, basically not really uh, allied with the Allies. After all, the Americans and so forth and the British both sent troops to try and make the up uh, the not the to defeat the Bolsheviks and. Right to the edge of 1939, the Soviet Union is still basically not clear whether they're going to side with the emerging German post-war world or with the allied world that has gone into an isolationist mode. Um, and, you know, that, 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 that requires a whole new story. And that's a whole new book, because I understand that's what you're tackling in your next book. And so That's I, true, because yeah. the... the the idea that I had of gambling on war and the willingness of people to make those gambles 
reaches its zenith, of course, uh, in 1939 and 40, when you get the, uh, for at least a, a couple of years, uh, the Ribbentrop-Molotov peace term, where the new German state allies with the new Soviet state in what would have been a partnership that would have had grave consequences for the rest of the world, but which fell apart when the Germans and the Russians go to war in 1939. And do you think in terms of looking at the kind of contemporary sort of geopolitics, um, have have those lessons around gambling, gambling on war, you know, have... Are we in danger of unlearning those lessons? Well, the atomic bomb made gambling on war, it it changed the parameters. You had to go to a different casino, so to speak, to carry that metaphor perhaps a bit too far. But what happens is that with the atomic bomb, you get a long period that we call a Cold War. And it is at that period is dominated by two blocks. the Americans and the Russians, so to speak. But that falls apart with the downing of the, of the Berlin Wall. And what I worry about today, and, and boy, we're talking about tomorrow, <laughs> actually, since, since that's when the midterm elections come in the United States, I worry about the rising wave of nationalism if it were to produce the same sort of situation or even something similar Beneath the atomic bombs, the rising wave of nationalism uh, that it was basically a key to the 1914 decision for all these countries to sort of choose one war or another that finally became one war. You know, I'm not I'm not going to try and prognosticate there, but the the difficulties of the Americans withdrawing from things, and then the British, the recent more recently. Uh, the problems of Angela Merkel in Germany, this rising wave of nationalism certainly politically reminds me, at least, uh, of the early 1930s. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a pessimistic note to end on, but um, I, I think we do need to end there. But And so just to say thank you very much, Roger, for those very interesting insights into the war. And any listeners keen to learn more can, of course, um, buy a copy of Gambling, Gambling on War in paperback. And um, I'm sure they'll also look forward to um, learning more about your next book as it takes shape. Thank you very much, Roger. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure.